Forum Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North, citizens of Earth. Welcome to Forum Borealis. Today we revisit a subject that ought to be known to you by now, and if it is, you will recognize these healthy worlds. You won't hold me. I'm leaving, and I don't care. I will not make any deals with you. I've resigned. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. Yep, that's the prisoner, or rather number six, or better yet, number one. Or let's just say Patrick McGuhan, the main creator of this cult series, which is source for endless interpretations and lessons. Which explains why we're revisiting it today in Act 2 of the show we've called Who is Number One? Last time we discussed this with Rick Davey, of the Unmutual website, and that show contains no spoilers. But if you have not yet familiarized yourself with the series, you need to do so before listening today, as it is going to be spoiler-rich. Our guest is Professor Fiona Moore, a Canadian academic, writer and critic based in London. She was a graduate of the University of Toronto and the University of Oxford and received her doctorate from the latter in 2002 for a thesis on ethnic identity among German expatriate bankers in the city of London. She has conducted multiple international studies in business, culture, identity and management for several universities. Her research work has been described by Professor Roger Goodman at the University of Oxford as engaging head-on with a growing and increasingly complex literature on transnationalism and globalization and relating it constructively to key ideas in symbolic anthropology. Her research interests are anthropology and its applications in business studies, German, Korean and Taiwanese business cultures, international management and demographics of multinational corporations. Dr. Moore has worked with Tesco, BMW, DG Bank and Oxford Analytica on various consultancy projects and is currently Chair of Business Anthropology at Royal Holloway in the University of London. She is a member of multiple research networks like International Association of Cross-Cultural Compliance and Management, ION Network, Academy of Management, where she's at the membership committee, and Women and Gender in Chinese Studies Network, where she's at the steering committee. Fiona Moore is one of the original members of the Magic Bullet Productions writing team and the co-author of the 50 Things About column in Celestial Toy Room. She is not only published in many journals, but is also editor of the research journals Critical Perspectives on International Business, Cross-Cultural and Strategic Management, Global Networks, Journal of International Business Studies and Wagnet Review. 
As a very prophetic writer, she has written innumerable publications in the form of research studies, monographs and academic texts on the anthropology of business and organizations, magazine articles, blogging, criticism of and guidebooks to television series, poetry, stage plays, audio dramas, short fiction and novels. She has even combined her professional focus with her entertainment work, for example, with a series called Management Lessons from Game of Thrones, Organization Theory and Strategy in Westeros, published at A Doctor of Many Things, which is the name of her blog. Fiona has naturally participated in many conferences, forums, workshops, seminars, courses, often as keynote speaker, and her media appearances count BBC, Sky News, Associated Press, Financial Times, Daily Express, Starburst Magazine, Times Higher Education, Strange Musings Press, Surrey Comet, Unlikely Story, The Tally Ho, The Breaking In Blog, Siren FM 107.5, Bookworm Podcast, TV You Grew Up With Podcast, Radio Jackie News, Time for Cakes and Ale Podcast, and has been a regular contributor since 08 to Southside Radio's Media Matters and Drive Time. And to top all this off, she's now coming on the forum as we make our second attempt to extract lessons and secrets from the prisoner series, supported by her book on it from 13 called Fallout, that she co-authored with Alan Stevens. So this is your wonder drug? Yes. Three doses. And that's the absolute limit. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Fiona. Thank you very much for having me, Al. It's great to be here. Great to have you. As I mentioned to you before we started, I had Rick on some months ago, and I believe he was the one who put us in touch. Yes, he was. Yeah. So I had this uh, smashing show, and uh, we covered the basics. Mm-hmm. And we kind of primed them for this show, okay. because this is going to be the follow-up. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> where we go deeper. I haven't heard... Uh... The Rick one, is that okay? It, it was very good, but it's not out yet. So um, that's why, otherwise I would have sent it to you. So I hope I've been priming the listeners who are not aware of this great masterpiece. And we don't have to spend a lot of time emphasizing how brilliant it is because it was more or less uh, a huge ad mm-hmm. <laughs> me and Rick did for the show last time. So they should, those who doesn't know it, should know by now, should have checked it out by now. And hopefully now we can take it further because of your angle to this, which I'm going to tell them very soon. But also let me say that I suspect many of my listeners are already into The Prisoner. And Mm -hmm. I personally have never heard a podcast about it. It's probably a million podcasts about it, but I would be interested to to hear some discussion and analysis around it. And for those who have had a few months now to check it out, they are probably having withdrawals right now. <laughs> so it's a good thing we can give them something <laughs> prisonerish to stifle their fix mm-hmm. or whatever you say. So so that's it. Now, you, that, like they heard, you are an academic. Could mm-hmm. you just repeat your uh, credential? Okay, I'm a uh, 
Professor of Business Anthropology at uh, Royal Holloway University of London. Mm. So for a, I'm sure your listeners know what an anthropologist does. Uh, sure. You know, we um, go to uh, different places. We um, uh, study people um, and how they behave through uh, called participant observation. Um, so uh, traditionally, an anthropologist might go to a uh, remote village and uh, live with people and uh, see what they do and understand their lives that way. Uh, business anthropology is quite similar, except that uh, we do it, uh, you know, with um, businesses and uh, um, modern offices. So I'm less likely to be going to a remote village than I am to be uh, working on a factory floor or uh, no. conducting interviews with Taiwanese business people. Yeah, but it strikes me that you are actually super qualified uh, mm. professionally even, not just personally. I mean, we are going to discuss a village after all mm-hmm. <laughs> with its own culture, right? <laughs> yes, it is. It is certainly a village with its own culture. Yeah. But uh, the natural uh, starting point before we delve deep, is to hear how you discovered this thing. It's always fun to hear people's stories. You know, like people say, yeah. where were you at 9-11, right? Mm-hmm. This is, it's a kind of the same thing for me. Uh, how did you discover the prisoner? Um, well, I uh, first heard about the prisoner um, when I was in secondary school, when I started uh, getting involved with uh, science fiction fandom. Um, I didn't see it at the time, I I did know that it was quite generally well regarded, you know, that people uh, thought it was a very good series and uh, that people should see it. But, um, you know, this was uh, back in the days of uh, analog television. So uh, you could really only see it if you uh, made an effort. Mm. Now, when I actually really count my uh, introduction to The Prisoner was with when I went away to uh, not just to university, but to uh, graduate school in uh, Oxford in the UK. And uh, when I was there, um, I uh, met quite a lot of people who were into uh, interested in cult television and, uh, and television history. And several of them were very, very into The Prisoner. And so uh, they, uh, um, <laughs> you know, uh, provided the videotapes. Uh, it was, that's how long ago it was. <laughs> and to... Uh, for me to watch it. And I mean, what struck me uh, most about it when I first watched it really was how pleasant the village seemed that yeah. um, I, I'd known the premise that, you know, it's a secret agent. Uh, he's resigned. He's trapped in this village where they're trying to find out uh, uh, why he resigned. You know, it gets surreal and gets strange, but uh, nobody told me how pleasant it was, how you could. Uh, yeah. You almost want to be there. Absolutely. The village seemed like such a nice place to be. And that was, uh, to my mind, the most powerful thing about it, how uh, the loss of freedom, as it were, is seductive, that you uh, can see how easy it would be to think, you know, oh, let's let, why don't I just give up, uh, live an easy life? Why don't I just yeah. give up uh, defending myself and uh, do what uh, the, uh, everybody in the village wants me to do? Very, very good point. Yeah. And give in. And uh, also just the beauty of all of it, the palette, the costumes, the... Uh, the scenery, come on, the architecture. Yeah, the oh scenery, God. the countryside, yeah. even when it would take diversions off into other places, like in uh, Living in Harmony and uh, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. It's all very uh, beautiful and glossy and uh, you just feel like you could sink into it and spend weeks there. Yeah, indeed, indeed. 
And uh, all that is deliberate, of course. Uh, it mm. kind of reminds me of Brave New World. Mm, yes. But I, I made a point to, to Rick, I made a point out of the fact that, you know, the dichotomy between Brave New World and 1984 is that, I say 1984 is overt mm -hmm. suppression. Mm -hmm. And uh, Brave New World is uh, more covert yeah. or, or the enticing thing. But the brilliance of The Prisoner, and I don't know how, how aware Patrick McGowan was about this, but whether it was intended or not, it was the end result that he managed to create a place that had both those uh, mm -hmm. types of oppression at, simultaneously. Yeah. So, so that was pretty amazing. Now, I don't know what um, second, what did you say, second school? I don't know what that uh, means in... in uh, Secondary my, school. Um, yeah. So... Uh, How old about were you? High school, when you're... Uh, like oh, okay, high school. 18 plus, sorry. So, so 13 plus, yeah. Teenager, late teens. Yeah. Early tweens, yeah. Well, that's a good time to discover it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and me too. I too had to rely on, I think it was VHS tapes... Mm -hmm. um, and the order I saw it in was was horrible. Mm. Um, me and Rick has tried to sort out the order so they can get an optimal mm. experience. Because my argument is, yes, you can watch it in almost any order. There are some key mm -hmm. key episodes, of course, but it's already so confusing by default. So why not help people as much of a timeline as possible? Because it's a non-linear story after all. Mm. So that's my argument to to make sure. So listeners, I hope you heard, you saw it, you watched it in the order we recommended. Yeah. By the way, I heard, no, I read, I read somewhere online, this is some years ago, a brilliant, and it was a woman, so I strongly suspect it's you, mm -hmm. a brilliant analysis where the there was drawn parallels to the ancient mystery dramas. Uh, could that have been something you wrote? Um, ancient mystery, um, you mean? Well, yeah, well, you know, passion place, you know, the, the origin to theater was when they had these, oh. they had these, um, it was, it was a kind of a ritual, but they, yeah. they wanted to convey uh, um, a meaning to the audience. Yeah. No, that wasn't me, but it might well have been uh, uh, one of my uh, colleagues from when I was at Oxford. Mm. We were all of us into the prisoner, and uh, we all wrote a lot about really? <laughs> uh, it from our uh, the points of view of our respective disciplines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, but that's interesting. So I discussed with Rick Davy mm. a lot of the political angles, uh, mm. which is unavoidable, of course. Yep. But I believe there are existential, philosophical slash spiritual angles too. Yeah. And um, in your book, uh, you go through some of the metaphors, right? Um, yeah, um, we were trying. I mean, one of the things uh, about um, about the prisoner is that uh, it's been written about from so many different uh, ways uh, and angles that we kept trying to find uh, newer approaches. So we looked at things more from uh, metaphorical points of view, satirical points of view. That was uh, one of the things we uh, focused on, the prisoner as satire, but also on kind of uh, psychology and the prisoner. So looking at um, right. things like how, in some ways, the relationship between the prisoner and the village is like a parent and a child. And uh, Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So I have your book open and full confession. I haven't read it. Yeah. Uh, but um, it's very telling, the, the table of contents. So uh, I suggest we just go through this in the order of your book, maybe. Okay. Uh, is that a good uh, way to, to do it? Yeah, though um, 
Just to pick up on what you said about the Brave New World versus 1984, um, there's a rather good um, book by an anthropologist uh, called Fjellman about uh, Disney World. Mm. And, um, you know, in it, it's uh, interesting you make that comparison because he too talks about how uh, there is this idea of uh, dystopias, uh, so you can define uh, dystopias in this way, the uh, 1984 kind of overt suppression, and then there's the... uh, Brave New World version, which is uh, more seductive. And his argument uh, is really that theme parks are kind of like uh, a Brave New World dystopia that, uh, you know, we're um, encouraged to uh, forget our troubles. But at the same time, we uh, uh, don't we lose track of how we are being controlled by our environment. So it's a modern day circus. Yeah. Mm. So um, you you start your book here with... um, you're talking about the production, mm-hmm. and uh, and you also say, and you also go into Drake's uh, Danger Man or, or mm-hmm. what is he called in America, Agent Man, Se- uh, Secret Agent, Secret Agent. That's it. Uh, and by the way, uh, talking about movies like Matrix, movies like V for Vendetta, mm-hmm. uh, and many others have a very strong iconography. Mm-hmm. There are like, you know, the mask became anonymous symbol, right? Uh, mm-hmm. G- Guy Fawkes. But the prisoner was early out with that kind of thing. Like there was this, you can't mistake the the symbolism, the identification. So you could, like if two insiders, they could flash mm-hmm. the symbols and they would immediately know which subculture was referenced. Mm-hmm. So I think that's pretty, I don't know if, Prisoner was first with this, but they were very early out with that kind of thing, whether it was deliberate or not, wouldn't you say? Yeah. No, I mean, one of the things the prisoner did was it sort of rode that kind of uh, iconography of the 1960s. And part of that is uh, the using of uh, symbols and uh, outward self-presentation to uh, show your subculture. So uh, the use of things like the penny farthing, for instance, or the uh, just you know, a particular kind of piped blazer, which you could really get in any shop, but a way of uh, demonstrating um, membership in a, a, a subculture or an institution through uh, through using those sorts of symbols. The umbrella. Yeah. But of course, more than anything, the numbers. Yes. But uh, let's, let's start with the beginning. Uh, you draw lines to Agent Man, uh, John Drake. Mm-hmm. Is that warranted? Um, how do you mean warranted? Well, there is a controversy, of course, mm-hmm. how much this can be associated with it. I, I kind of like the idea that it's Drake in his older years, you know, retiring, um, mm-hmm. trying to retire, though. Um, but, of course, uh, Rick warns us that we shouldn't buy too much into the, uh, that because mm-hmm. uh, John Drake's story is almost cliche. You have a parallel in... Well, there's two strong parallels. There's mm-hmm. the Western episode in The Prisoner where he refused to use a gun. Mm-hmm. That, that's a callback to John Drake, who, yeah. who was, he was James Bond without the womanizing and uh, weaponry, right? So, mm-hmm. And Rick told me there's an episode in, John, uh, in uh, Agent Man, uh, Danger Man, where <laughs> the agent is brought to uh, an isolated village, which is a retirement camp. Mm-hmm. for agents. I mean, 
That's a huge parallel. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know your angle. What? Why do you start with uh, talking about? You call it Drake's drum. Okay. Well, we start start by talking about uh, Secret Agent. I mean, yeah, we do touch on the uh, you know is the prisoner Drake uh, controversy. Though we uh, we argue that um, you know it's um, it's not that simple really, but uh, that there's. There isn't really anything in the series to say, you know, yes, he is. So uh, draw your own conclusions. Mm. Um, but we um, we find we find it interesting, um, partly because I mean, it's not there isn't just the uh, the one uh, story, Colony Three, that's uh, um, yeah. along those lines. There are other uh, several other stories which deal with themes of agents resigning and uh, uh, also of. Uh, you know, surreal things happening. There's one episode which turns out to be all entirely a dream on Drake's part, but it's uh, very prisoner-esque with things like Desmond Llewellyn, who was the, by that point well-known for playing Q, uh, turning up uh, in the in the story and so forth. And uh, wow. also it's kind of interesting seeing its progress because it started out really very much as a kind of a James Bond clone trying to cash in on it. And uh, McGowan wasn't really terribly happy with that, and I don't think audiences were either. So it sort of became a bit more, uh, still a little bit fantasy, but more uh, low-key. You know, this is where uh, Drake starts uh, taking his anti-weapon stance and uh, uh, very much, uh, you know, also steering away from being the kind of woman-seducing uh, cad that James Bond was. <laughs> yeah. But it also, I mean, in some ways... It shows um, the um, the narrative roots of the prisoner because although um, Danger Man is more of a conventional spy series, this is kind of what the prisoner is drawing on. So you've got things like um, Danger Man was uh, very explicitly uh, transnational. You know, this is a time when people were uh, starting to travel and also starting to be aware of. Uh, colonialism and decolonialism so a lot of episodes would for instance have the prisoner going to india and uh, working with indian agents oh, you mean uh, you mean the danger man sorry danger man yes we're, we're working with indian agents or african agents to solve a uh, crime locally mm. and this is kind of reflected in the uh, the globalizing and multicultural nature of the village with the uh, yeah which uh, the whole world is the village the prisoner says and uh, he also says i'd like to be the first man on the moon yeah yeah. And also even things, um, if you see Danger Man or even a bit of Danger Man, it can be really useful to contextualize things like um, the prisoner using a lot of uh, stock footage backgrounds in the stories that are set outside the village, for instance. You know, that seems sort of strange and even cheap to us now. But then if you uh, watch spy series from the time and you realize that uh, a lot of uh, them also use, in fact, exactly the same uh, filmed backgrounds to... Uh, suggest um, foreign travel. And um, there was also an awful lot of casting overlap, which can sometimes lead to fun speculations. You can speculate that um, some character from the prisoner, uh, not just the prisoner himself, but other uh, characters within the prisoner have uh, analogs in Danger Man. Mm. And um, yeah, you know, even the, uh, the American uh, theme tune of the show said, you know, they've given you a number and they've taken away your name, which seems, you know, almost uh, prescient in hindsight. Wow, I didn't know. I haven't heard that. Is that what's that? Someone who said uh, voiceover thing that Americans? No, did? it's um, the American uh, version uh, had a uh, uh, a cheerful kind of pop tune over the titles, which um, really? wound up being a uh, a musical hit, and it's called 
Uh, I won't sing it, <laughs> but uh, you can <laughs> undoubtedly look it up on YouTube. Uh, it's called Secret Agent Man. Oh, yeah, I've heard that song. And the chorus goes, Secret Agent Man, Secret yes. Agent Man. They've given you a number and they've taken away your name. Yeah, I've heard that song. Never... Uh... Secret agent man, that's something like one. that. That's the yeah, one. Yeah, but I didn't. Uh, that, that was a scene, yeah. <laughs> But I didn't notice the text there. So, so maybe, maybe it, it isn't too bad to start with watching Secret Agent Man and then face yeah. over to Prisoner. Sure, I would say unless you're really into spy series, you know, you don't need to watch all of it to understand the Prisoner. No, um, no. you can probably miss out the entire first season when, as I said, they were trying to be James Bond and not doing too well at it. Yeah. But um, watching a few um, series, and in particular, uh, the uh, final uh, couple of um, uh, their final season was just two feature length uh, stories, um, Koroshi and Shindashima, and they're in color and they almost directly, in some ways, they can be seen as almost a lead into uh, The Prisoner. And in fact, in some uh, ITV regions in this country, in England, they were actually shown um, either during The Prisoner or just before The Prisoner. Huh. That's great. So, uh, you know, so you can get an idea of uh, where McGowan was starting from when the uh, the series began. So so we could push it to around 20 episodes. Then. In a way, But yes. uh, are, these, are these the last episodes of the last season of... of yeah, Benjamin? they are. Mm, okay. they, they are still a, very much a straight spy story, but they're in color, unlike the rest of the series, which is in black and white. Mm. And uh, they are, uh, as I said, just the, the project that McGowan finished directly beforehand. So you can kind of see where his... Uh, Uh, his mind was uh, when he began The Prisoner. Mm. Mm. It's funny that uh, it's almost like Patrick McGowan wanted to escape mm. from the straitjacket of uh, John Drake. And mm. that became also his his theme in The Prisoner. Mm -hmm. Right? Wouldn't you say that's, that's a yeah. personal kind of angle for him? Yeah. Well, I mean, nobody really knows, of course, but it does seem... Uh, psychologically like um there was this uh, this aspect of it there that uh, in uh, making the prisoner McGowan was kind of escaping from the uh, spy series that were increasingly <laughs> coming to define his career mm. so you start you start with arrival but i i want to ask you about something you you call it the music of the spheres mm. the history and meaning of rover now i made an observation to rick i said that And I know that they intentionally or originally intended to have a, a robot, yeah, a mobile robot or something. But when he saw the balloon, because the robot didn't work, and you know, this is in the '60s, a weather balloon was the go-to excuse, where in UFO cases, mm -hmm. nothing to see here. Move on, it's a weather balloon. Mm. And that's so funny that he chose, uh, and that was strong in people's consciousness back then. Today it's it's a cliche, so nobody thinks mm. associates it anymore. But when you see this creepy, uncanny rover thing, these balloons, it kind of has an association to UFOs because, first off, you don't know if they're organic or if they are technological mm. or maybe a combination. They can go underwater. They can sway in the air. They have seemingly paranormal functions, at least hypnotical mm. and... Yeah, they do something to you. They can kill. So mm -hmm. it's it's maybe it's a stretch, but whether it was intended or not, the UFO association isn't too off. You know, many UFOs are just light spheres. Mm -hmm. You know, the Foo Fighters of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. 
So, so that's my uh, thinking about it. But you have an essay here, and uh, I don't know why you call it the music of the spheres. Tell us. Um, well, because of the, uh, the uh, rover being uh, spherical and the uh, right, themes right. that uh, that brings up. Hang on. Yeah. Yeah. So, what would you say is the meaning? Yeah. Well, you've got um, the thing about it. It, it was serendipitous uh, finding the, um, you know, the weather balloon, as you say. Um, but the thing is, I mean, first of all, it's interesting because uh, the uh, appearance of the original rover also uh, picks up on the village iconography. So if you uh, see the footage of the original rover, it's a sort of a black and white uh, pattern thing that looks a bit like the butler's umbrella, for instance. And mm. uh, it's got a blue flashing light, which is another motif which turns up over and over. And then when you um, use uh, the weather balloon, you know, this kind of comes in on other iconography, the uh, the white badges with the number, for instance, you know, uh, yeah. uh, like the, um, the, the sphere. And um, you've got um, things like um, the strange sequence where uh, the prisoner kind of happens across a uh, back room, which is a sort of a cave where... Uh, a group of people are watching a rover as if it was a television. Yeah. So you've got this um, image, a rover is kind of a void. It's number zero, you know, yeah. but it's also kind of television itself. It's blank. I mean, there, there's this line in one of the books, I've just been looking at the, the Prisoner's Dilemma, which says, uh, rover is a thought balloon for the thought police. No wonder it's empty. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, uh, and one of the directors of the series called it... Uh, faceless suffocating bureaucracy uh, you can also kind of call it uh, you know uh, an eye or even you know sort of the unknown and that kind of picks up on your ufo thing i mean the thing about ufos is they are the unknown you know unidentified yep. flying objects and also your classic ufo is a round featureless flying disc there's yep. uh, this idea you know it's mysterious we don't know what's inside it we don't know uh, where where uh, it's from. I mean, I'm also very fond of Twin Peaks and for many of the similar same reasons as The Prisoner. But uh, mm. one of the things that UFOs are a uh, big thing um, in um, Twin Peaks as well for the uh, for the unknownness of it mm. throughout the series. Although some of the characters are investigating UFOs, it's not clear whether these UFOs are of alien origin or human origin or whether they're actually something spiritual. Mm. Which is exactly the debate still going mm -hmm. on today. Yes. But um, uh, you mentioned I. That uh, leads me to another association to popular culture in conspiracy theories, mm. because you have the notion of Illuminati, right? Mm. And they are often associated to this I in the pyramid, which I believe may origin from the eye of Ra. Mm. which actually was a good symbol, but mm -hmm. is somehow turned into an oppression symbol. And uh, you also have uh, another parallel to that. You have the masked elite. Um, mm. I mean, we, we are going to do spoilers today. We can't avoid yeah. it, but the we're going to try to... For, uh, the series has been out for nearly 50 years. I think it's time. <laughs> yes. So we are allowed, but we, we can try to keep it somewhat mm. tidy nonetheless. Uh, and the same goes for your book. We're not going to exhaust everything in it. Just some ideas. But uh, I'm thinking these masked uh, elite mm. kind of thing is also like an Illuminati reference. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying like he hinted to mm -hmm. that specific uh, notion. I, I don't believe that was a very prevalent 
hypothesis at the day, but it's just a general iconography of it. It's that we're always watching, Big Brother's watching, mm-hmm. and we're masked. You know, in psychology, masks mm-hmm. are uh, a symbol of the persona. Mm-hmm. And if something is, if there's a strong red thread throughout this series, it is the individuality versus the oppressive aspect of the collective, if you like. Yeah. It is interesting. And again, not to uh, spoiler uh, things too much, but the um, the symbolism of the masks and the prisoner, though, towards the end is uh, these sort of masked and hooded figures is quite interesting in that uh, the individual then emerges from under the masks and hoods. Mm. And uh, th- through as things spiral into chaos, you know, uh, the masks and hoods are torn away and the individual emerges, but the individual is also chaotic, you know. Yeah. He's uh, he, uh, the individual is mad and poss- quite possibly destroys his environment. Yeah. So in some ways, there's also this element of uh, the individual versus society that uh, society can sometimes seem oppressive, but uh, society is also necessary for uh, all of us to uh, well, all of us to survive as a uh, as, as a community. Mm. You know, if we haven't uh, if uh, we don't have these uh, strange masked figures, then, uh, you know, uh, then possibly uh, the village blows up. And is this a good thing? It depends on what you, you know, well, since the uh, uh, village represents kind of the oppressive side of community, you know, the insistence on conformity, then yes. Mm. Mm. Um, So I think uh, the uh, prisoner is in some ways a uh, cry for, uh, you know, the uh, individual to uh, assert themselves, uh, you know, against the community if necessary, but to kind of recognize when the uh, 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 the community has gone too far and uh, when, um, you know, the uh, the individual's voice needs to be heard. But at the same time, recognizing that the individual uh, unfettered is also, you know, you pull the mask off and it's a monkey. You yeah. pull the other mask off and it's a madman. So, uh, you know, there, um, there are uh, dangers in unfettered individualism as much as there are in oppressive communitarianism. Especially when those individuals, those egos mm. are running the show, mm-hmm, yeah. when it's not democracy, when it's not collective decisions yeah. to the best of mankind, but someone uh, is behind. You know, it's the classical, yeah. what you say, the Americans say, uh, the man behind the curtain, yeah. right? Yeah. So, uh, and you mentioned the monkey. It just struck me that, you know, they're playing a lot with timeline. Mm-hmm. They're playing uh, a lot with... Um, non-linear time and mm-hmm. i think when everything explodes into a psychedelic orgasm at the end mm-hmm. i get a reference to like suddenly we see a monkey when when um, yeah when he pulls the mask off he is unmasked yeah i'm thinking yeah. Oh, yeah. in a way they're going back to the regions of mankind mm-hmm. you know in in a darwinian sense mm-hmm. and then um, of course it ends up with the almost agnostic I, I won't reveal that. Mm-hmm. That's a big reveal in the series, but it's like a Gnostic uh, approach, certainly. Mm-hmm. Like, know thyself, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, over the Delphi Oracle uh, at the temple there, mm-hmm. the whole saying isn't just know thyself. It's a man, know thyself, and you shall know the gods and cosmos. Mm-hmm. And I believe uh, Patrick was onto this because, like I mentioned to you, there was, um, I I thought that was you, but there was this uh, academic woman who wrote Mm -hmm. parallels to ancient mystery dramas. 
Mm-hmm. And they were big on that kind of... And I, I believe she also claimed that he had admitted in an interview or something somewhere that, yeah, he was inspired by ancient mystery dramas. If this is correct, it just adds a new superb mm-hmm. layer to the whole thing. I mean, well, he's a genius. Yeah, and he was well-read. I mean, uh, Every Man Productions is a uh, call back to uh, medieval theatre, you know, his production company. Yeah. It's the, uh, oh, how so? How so? Um, well, um, Every Man is the name of a famous uh, medieval uh, allegory play. Right. Where uh, every man is kind of, uh, the, our protagonist is every man, assaulted by... Um, uh, travails and uh, temptations and, uh, you know, needing to uh, navigate his way in a difficult spiritual universe. Right. I mean, it's been a long time since I've uh, seen or read it, but uh, McGowan was uh, very literate and he would certainly have been, as I said, I haven't read the article uh, that you mentioned, but uh, McGowan was uh, theatrically literate and he would have been very aware of uh, medieval mystery plays and uh, uh, and the origins. Yeah. Was he a classical uh, actor, you know, uh, raised in, in theatre? Um, he was, um, yes, he was. I mean, his uh, he was very, very fond of Ibsen. Oh, that's our, our guy, Ibsen, yeah. Yep, absolutely. In, fa- in fact, uh, he was, uh, there, the, you, you can find actually through the BFI a filmed uh, uh, version of uh, Brand that was kind of he considered his theatrical masterpiece. It's a stage play uh-huh. that was uh, then recorded for television. Nice. And although McGowan himself was a film actor, um, he um, was very influenced by um, Orson Welles and the mm. like. Mm. And uh, he, um, who very much kind of brought out the theatrical aspects of uh, cinema, and uh, McGowan did want to do a film version of uh, Brand, and this was one of his post-prisoner projects, which in the end uh, fell through because he couldn't get the budget that he wanted for it. Mm. But very much those themes uh, in Brand of the the individual versus society and then in the end being overcome by nature, mm. those very much feed into uh, the prisoner and in McGowan's writing for it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, this play about, you know, referencing identity... Uh, because the big mystery, I, I bet many of the people, especially back in the day watching it, at one level, they are just watching it as an agent drama and wanting to know the answers to the mystery. But Patrick nudges us into a deeper uh, layer by doing all the surrealism. Mm-hmm. He's saying what you really are wondering about isn't these superficial things, because I've given you a lot of answers to them in the series which isn't satisfying at all we don't believe it because obviously because they are even if he would say the real answer like at one episode i believe he says no i just wanted peace of mind <laughs> mm. nobody accepts that not even number two and no and, and to go deeper then so he wants us to inquire deeper and the deepest you know, there's this cliche in philosophy, right? Who am who? Who am I? Where am I going? Etc. Mm-hmm. That's where he wants us, and you see that in, the, you know, who is number one in English? If you write it, it is who is no dot one. Mm-hmm. Who is no one? Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, you mentioned zero. Uh, that is kind of also one of the inter- valid interpretations. Because it's not as simple as he was the guy all along. Uh, it's, I believe it's highly symbolic. Uh, 
when he depicts himself in the role of the guy, the man. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, well, he could be anyone. He could be you. He could be me. Given, put an ego in that position and he won't, he won't master that, mm-hmm. you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So who is no one? Yeah. Maybe, maybe there is, maybe we can't blame a single individual. There's so many takeaways from this play of words. Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of play. And I convinced this deliberate. In the beginning of every episode, he says, Yeah. Who are, who are, who is you? number one? Yeah. He says, Who is number one? And then they reply, You are number six. But if you listen to the last time they say that, mm-hmm. the last episode, they say that for once they say it. If it was written with a comma after you are comma mm-hmm. number six, so so it th- that's the first time we hear they say you are number six. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Instead of saying you are number six, yeah. so yeah. so so the, this has to be deliberate. Oh yes, don't you think? Yes, no, that's uh, sort of playing with uh, words and imagery is uh, is deliberate. You know, it's uh, who is no one, as you said. Also, who is no I? If you write uh, one in some ways, it can look like an I. So uh, right. one is I, one uh, one is ego, and possibly no one is the denial of ego. Mm. Brilliant. So, um, you know, there's uh, so many directions in which you can be taken. Uh, one of the uh, writers of one of the subsequent books of, uh, on the series pointed out that, uh, you know, the saying, uh, he says, I am not a number, but he pointed out that in mathematics, I is an irrational number. <laughs> so I is a number, but it's an irrational one. So right. that's an extra an extra pun. I'm not even sure if McGowan was aware of it, but I think he'd be <laughs> delighted if uh, somebody pointed it out to him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. But uh, okay, let's uh, let's review some of the episodes. Um, sure. It looks to me as if you have uh, divided them into sections. Mm-hmm. You give uh, uh, you give episode number one its own due, then you and, and when you say episode two, three, and four, five, six, and seven, etc., you're going by the production order or, or um, which kind of order? Let me. Uh, or maybe it's it's a thematic order. Yeah, I think I, I, I'm. It's been a while since we did it, uh, but um, I think we we, we do uh, talk about, uh, you can see from the uh, thing, we do talk about the question of uh, episode order. I I think we um, we did them in, uh, in so I think you, we you, did them in production order. Um, yeah, so you, but, you, you know, just, but, you know, with the recognition that this may not necessarily be the best order in which to view them or the most desirable, depending on what you want to get out of the series. Yeah. But at the same time that, uh, as you and Rick have uh, doubtless uh, said, you know, it's uh, kind of impossible to pin a definitive uh, episode order down on the series. Yep, that's true. But you do divide it into sections, though. Uh, you, you start with uh, the first episode uh, mm-hmm. on its own. Mm-hmm. What would you point out about Arrival? Um, well, I'd say probably um, the way in which it, uh, you know, sets up the series. And, uh, you know, it its key function really is to uh, set up both the village and the prisoner's situation within it and to uh, introduce its uh, main themes. So you almost kind of get um, two stories in the same episode. So you've got uh, the prisoner uh, 
the arrival in the village up until, you know, the point at which he tries to escape by the beach and is attacked by Rover. Mm. And then finally, um, the uh, other sub, there's this other subplot uh, about uh, Nine and Cobb who don't appear in the first story, but you've also got this idea that, uh, you know, it, it sort of says setting things up that the prisoner is uh, going to be continually drawn into escape plans and betrayals that he's going to be, uh, drawn to people who seem to be in distress, mostly women, and uh, yet things aren't quite what, what they are, what they seem. It's also the way in which uh, the, the uh, sets up the way in which the village uh, is this surreal space. Like we see this map of the village, uh, which uh, is just this tiny borders, and yet is also <laughs> uh, using the word uh, freedom, you know, free sea, you know, uh, mm. is a pond. But uh, so there's this idea that... Uh, the, uh, you can call a pond a sea, and yet you can also declare it as free. So, uh, you know, what does it mean when people say something is free? What's Is the free world really the free world, or is it like calling a pond a free sea? Yeah, free for all. Yeah, Free is also a, a theme going through the whole thing. Yeah, and what the is freedom? definition of freedom, does it mean uh, freedom to do what you want? Does it mean, uh, is it uh, a kind of an ersatz freedom? In the episode Free for All, you know, about the uh, election, the whole point is really about, uh, you know, the election is a sham and it's corrupt and its purpose is to uh, draw the prisoner into the village's power structures. He was so early out. And yet it works. Yeah, he was so early out. I mean, back then, if you suggested that there could be sham in elections in Western democracy, it would be unheard of. Yeah. But he just came out and pointed to the theater of it. Yeah. But there's Again, also... One thing I think that... Yeah, go on, go uh, on. Well, the prisoner is timeless. I think one of the things that sort of gets lost uh, on uh, modern audiences is that, uh, you know, at the time, you know, during the Cold War, it was uh, really heretical to be challenging the idea that the free world... Yeah. Uh, to say that the free world isn't free, you know, to say that uh, maybe the free world... Uh, has more in common with totalitarian states than it would care to admit. You know, that was just really subversive. Yeah. I mean, one of the lines we hear in every episode in the beginning is, whose side are you on? Yeah. And that's a big theme too, uh, just like uh, the identity thing and the freedom thing, because mm-hmm. like I said to Rick, we don't know, first of all, we don't know which side he is on. Mm-hmm. We don't know which side has caught him. Uh, and also, he has the audacity to suggest that it even doesn't matter because both sides yeah. are the same. One side is 1984, the other side is Brave New World, maybe. But you see the same in this question of the prisoner, because I protested when he were, when Rick called him number six. I said, he's not really number six. He, he always denies being number six. Mm-hmm. He granted me that point, and he suggested we call him the prisoner. Mm-hmm. But then I, I saw his prisoner, and I raised him with, Look, there's an argument to be made that he's the only free man there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone else are prisoners, mm-hmm. including the wardens. Yes. Because he can't even see. In one episode, he makes a point out of, I want to know who are the prisoners and who are the wards, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I have a system to find out. But it's all blurring throughout every episode. Yeah. So in a way, he's the only free man. Mm-hmm. And that questions, what is freedom? Mm-hmm. You can be more free in an oppressive society and you can be more imprisoned in a free society, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Just some, just some thoughts. And there is this ambivalence about: is it uh, 
is is the um, at some point they say the village is behind the iron curtain That's right. and other times they say that uh, you know maybe it is in the uh, so-called free world maybe and it, in the end they say you know the village is in wales surprise no do they say that in the series itself um well in some ways by implication you know in the final episode they uh, put up the card saying filmed in port mary in wales right Plus, they are within driving distance to London. Yeah, of London, yeah. Mm. So, you know, maybe the village is Port Marion. <laughs> right, right. And then you uh, lump together the charms of Big Ben, A, B and C and Free for All. Um, well, actually, we kind of don't uh, do it quite that way. You're seeing here is that um, we intend each... Um, We intend each episode guide to be read on its own. Oh, okay. Um, and we we're not um, lumping them together, but we are punctuating them with essays. So what you see is essay one is uh, episode one is arrival, then essay one music of the spheres. Mm. Then we do chimes of Big Ben, ABC, and free for all. Then essay two, not a number, the prisoners episode order. Right. And then we. Oh, do, that's a good point. Even yeah. even the episode order is protesting. You know, not the number. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Good point. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, but the the thing is that what we're doing is that we're uh, when we were writing the book, we found that there were issues like the episode order and uh, gender and sexuality and things like that that we couldn't just fold into uh, uh, an episode review. Like the first right. book that we wrote for Telos was a guide to uh, Blake Seven, and that was much more straightforward in some ways in that we just uh, we would write it's four seasons so we would write an introductory essay for each season then reviews for each episode and then at the beginning and end uh, an article about the genesis of the series and an article about the series legacy right but with the prisoner we found that there were a lot of essays uh, topics that couldn't really be easily contained within a single uh, episode mm. so we opted to make those kind of uh, essays to punctuate uh, the narrative Clever. And the positioning of the essays is really kind of where these things start to become relevant in the um, the way we're exploring the series. So why we put um, the uh, Not a Number essay um, after Free for All was because um, you you really in The Prisoner kind of have uh, four episode. Yeah, you, you have three episode twos is what you have. Yeah. <laughs> you have episode one arrival. And then there were all of these episodes, The Chimes of Big Ben, A, B, and C, and Free For All, were all written simultaneously mm. and with a view to them being transmitted as episode two, mm. which obviously they weren't, you know. Um, but um At this point, in, if, if somebody is watching the series, by the time they get to free-for-all, they should be uh, realizing something is very wrong with episode order. There's, yeah. This is not doing what we expected. Uh -huh. So we stop the, uh, the viewing and we make this point. Yeah. And then after Dance of the Dead, Dance of the Dead is really very much a uh, story which deals with gender and sexuality. You know, by this point, we've had um, well, more than one gay or possibly gay character in the series, but the Dance of the Dead actually... Uh, Sets up. A Could you remind me who, who, who the gay guy was? Um, well, in uh, I think it's number 12 in, uh, well, in, in A, B, and C, um, Peter Bowles's character um, is, uh, you know, uh, in the dream sequences. Uh, it's um, kind of played and could be read as uh, if he were uh, um, a gay man coming out and uh, speaking to his uh, lover who has uh, decided not to. 
And uh, I forgot. And I think it's the general. Yeah, it's the general. Um, uh, number 12 is also uh, coded as gay. Ah. Yeah, because back then, a gay was. Uh, yeah. Wasn't it even illegal in, in Britain back then? Uh, well, it. It had it was legalized in the sixties, but and uh, debates about legalization date back to nineteen fifty seven. But it was certainly uh, still, you know, it was considered very suspect. Yeah, yeah, a stigma. Yeah, yeah, it's true that uh, he he foresaw globalism before globalism. There's a Hindu, yeah, suddenly popping up like n nothing. Just no, no, I'm a regular citizen. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, at that point, we yeah, it's it's in. Uh, I've got the character name wrong, but it is, yeah, in, uh, no, it is number 12. Yeah, it's number 12, played by John Castle in uh, uh, The General. So, yeah, I forgot the character. So, um, the, at that point, you know, we pause and we talk about uh, the series. Uh, essentially, we uh, say it's it's got very forward-looking attitudes on uh, gender and sexuality. Um, it's a bit patchier on representations of ethnic minorities, you know, that... Uh, um, quite often they're there um, not as characters, but to make a symbolic point, like mm. having a supervisor who uh, is Haitian and played by a uh, Earl Cameron. And uh, as you said, uh, having a Hindu. And at one point in, um, I think... Yeah, it's hang on, hang on. I have to make a point here because yeah. this was before the... In some countries, it's a rule. In other countries, it's an unwritten rule that you have to cast minorities yeah. uh, to... to yeah. qualify for some kind of social uh, expectation but yeah that wasn't valid back then it could be entirely british people all around but he yeah. deliberately put in he even put in german so you like nazi yeah. Yeah. association so he was deliberately pointing out that this you know you can't be sure which side this is and yeah it's global yeah, so yeah. and casting a czech actor in a uh, story about uh you know, uh, about an assassination attempt, for instance. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's worth remembering that. But, uh, yeah, um, colorblind casting was very, very much in the future. I mean, it's also increasingly uh, an industry uh, standard that, uh, you know, casting directors these days uh, will say, you know, kind of let's look at the, uh, unless, unless there's an obvious reason within the story to uh, make a character a particular ethnicity, let's... Uh, cast all ethnicities look at yeah so for instance when we also did books on battlestar galactica and when they uh, made new battlestar galactica where uh, for the uh, uh, character of uh, president roslin um, who was uh, eventually played by and of course uh, uh, mary mcdonnell yeah, um, yeah. they also considered alfrey woodward a very good uh, black american actress uh, for the role mm. And I think she would have been quite splendid in it. Yeah, but uh, but back then the, the that standard yeah. wasn't set, so no, it wasn't as common a thing. Yeah, so he he no doubt this was deliberate and uh, yeah. foreseeing globalism during the Cold War. That's pretty mm. good. That's pretty clever. There is, um, you know, one of the episodes orders we discussed. Me and Rick, mm -hmm. uh, we kind of saw we we tried to make take heed for internal references mm -hmm. and uh, the dramaturgy, how it's unfolding. And mm -hmm. he becomes, you know, he's, he's, he's pretty desperate in the beginning. Then he comes down, he gets a survey of what's what, and then he starts to play the game and, and mm -hmm. tries to control 
them. Mm -hmm. But you can see a similar attitude when you watch these episodes in what we believe are the optimal order. You can see a similar attitude from the wardens that mm -hmm. they too become increasingly desperate. And there's a kind of a shift. You know, first they try basic interrogation, basic tricks, basic agent man stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And then they start to get meta with uh, yes. screwing with his mind, you know, uh, chemicals, uh, hallucinogens, hypnosis, uh, all these black American projects, you know, mm. uh, what are they called? Um, the mind control uh, things. Yeah, the CIA uh, mind control experiments. Yeah, yeah, I forgot the name, code names, but the famous. And uh, this was before this was officially revealed and admitted. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was very early on. He's such an innovator and mm -hmm. original in so many aspects. And, and, and then if you grant that they are screwing with his mind in so many ways, mm -hmm. including the futuristic technology of body switching and yeah. hacking the dreams, then no wonder stuff is getting more and more psychedelic as the series mm -hmm. progresses. And again, I'm talking now when you lump, when, when you really take heed of the internal references and you get the optimal, because I believe there is a chronology to be made, mm. not for every episode, but for most. Yeah. And when you view it like that, then you see that the journey to the surrealism it's kind of warranted by what he goes through. Mm -hmm. At some point, maybe, and that is also a, an, a, an angular interpretation of the end episodes, that maybe they screwed him so much that there's no telling anymore what's real and not real. The, the dreams, I mean, in the beginning, when they hack the dream, it's, it's pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. Although even there, it's starting to conflate because, you know, in the end, he walks in to number two's office, right? And they are looking at the door as if he's actually coming. <laughs> mm -hmm. But later, when he has, for example, where he battles this girl in a cliche agent kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, oh, one of the, the girl who was death, yes. That's it. Death. That's uh, like, a, it's it's like a dream. Mm -hmm. and, and death, like falling asleep is the little death, right? And, mm -hmm. and so at this point, he may be dead, it may be limbo, yeah. he may be just screwed, we don't know. So there's a, even hyper-rational, logical people can kind of make an out to all awareness by what he goes through. Mm -hmm. Because like I say, and this is the gist of my point here, is that they kind of lump together different kinds of intervention to break mm -hmm. the individual, which gets increasingly worse. Yes. Comment? No, I agree. I mean, first of all, yeah, that the um, series really does play with the whole question of, you know, who are the prisoners and who are the wardens, you know, uh, the um, people oppressing him are themselves oppressed by their own systems. Mm. And uh, he uh, frequently turns the tables on them and plays them. But also, I want to return to what you said about the death that, because uh, one of the things that uh, we found very interesting when we were working on the book was the uh, you know, the death imagery. I mean, in De uh, Dance of the Dead, you know, at the end of it, uh, they say to the prisoner, you're dead. That's right. That's right. He is legally dead in that uh, they say to him that in the outside world, you know, the fiction has been put about that he is dead. And so the uh, world is continuing without him. But, you know, a lot of it sometimes seems as if he really is dead within the village and the village is a kind of a purgatory afterlife. Yeah. Yeah. So that can tie in also with your uh, point about the... Um, 
the mystery plays, you know, they're yeah. uh, sort of explorations of heaven and hell and, uh, you know, be, uh, souls being tested. It's mm. uh, a kind of a um, strange, surreal place where you are tested and either uh, found wanting or else uh, found able to pass on into, uh, well, who knows who knows what, you know, nirvana, re, uh, hmm. reincarnation, perhaps. I mean, the hmm. end of the series could be taken as a kind of a reincarnation in that uh, he goes back to London and uh, drives his car. Yeah, and notwithstanding that every episode is kind of a reincarnation too. Yes, it is. Because it always back to scratch. Yeah. Groundhog Day. Yeah, it is. He's always back in the village. We always start off. I mean, one of the things we said about episode order is that in some ways uh, we could be looking at uh, 17 uh, you know, first episodes, because, uh, you know, he's always kind of born anew into the village. It's like trying to escape the uh, wheel of life, as the Buddhists would call it. Yeah, yeah, the Dharma. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you made a brilliant point here about him being dead. Uh, you know, the series Lost Yeah, yeah. is an overt tribute to the prisoner. Yeah. They made no attempt to hide it. But they opted out what Patrick did better than them, is that they succumbed to the pressure of giving our, a logical out. Mm -hmm. So they, well, it was purgatory. Yeah. They chose that angle. Yeah. Then the horrible remake of The Prisoner, they did a grave sin of the cheap mm. it's a no-no uh, today because it's such a cliche the cheap it's all a dream thing mm. now the prisoner could have done that because they mm. flirted with both those options but made it very clear that no it's not that simple mm -hmm. and he deliberately didn't want to give us uh, an, uh, uh, a rational out uh, this same as twin peaks mm. both those and i believe lynch too was inspired by prisoner yes. but, but both those also lynch went for Patrick McGuhan's solution. And he, too bad for him because he suffered the same <laughs> reaction. <laughs> Both of them, the people was in upheaval, right? There was an uproar. There was like, <laughs> I believe both of them had to escape. Yes, quite. And of course, uh, reactions. the yeah. funny thing is that Lynch, of course, uh, then eventually uh, did a um, revival or a return. Well, the return. He did the return. And that left people with more questions. Yeah. Which is which is lovely, you know. I love both Twin Peaks and The Return, and I think The Return is. I've recently been rewatching it all, and uh, you can see that The Return is um, so much more, you know, Lynch having discovered his craft and uh, built up his experience. Yeah. Uh, but you know, if you're looking for easy answers, you're never going to find them. <laughs> no, but you are getting clues, so you can. Yeah do your own detective work. And, and that's brilliant too, because in a way he's educating us. He's saying, use your mind, find out for yourself. Yes. Don't just be feeded. I believe that's a huge uh, message uh, from McGowan. <laughs> you know, when he uses this entire series as a catharsis of his own mm -hmm. to break with all the uh, cliche narratives and expectations, uh, he, he does what the ancient plays want us to do. They mm -hmm. want to educate us. They want to teach us. They want to raise us more than anything. They want to mm -hmm. make us better, more clever at the end of it. Yeah. And I believe this is his contribution to that process. It's not to screw with us. It's not being deliberately, it's not mystique for mystique's own sake. It's no. mystique as a tool, don't you think? Yeah, I agree with you. Mm. It's uh, encouraging people to think for themselves and to draw their own interpretations and not to, uh, 
look even to the uh, the maker of the series for answers. Yeah, he even denied giving any answers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. I mean, I'll say... If I can go back to one thing you said uh, before, you mentioned that a lot of people at the time were probably watching it as a, a spy series. Well, yeah. this is one of the interesting things about um, the prisoners' reception at the time uh, compared to uh, subsequently. I mean, it's uh, now got this status very much as a classic, but at the time, uh, people were just um, quite upset or angered or turned <laughs> off by the end, especially by the ending of the series, yeah. uh, because they were thinking of it as a, um, a spy series, you know, one with uh, maybe some slightly strange elements, but that, you know, eventually, like all spy series, this was going to be explained and there was going to be some kind of resolution. And when there wasn't, you know, people were very upset. Mm. And I think, uh, though, uh, how upset, upset is kind of exaggerated, but um, still, you've... Um, it um, in in the same way as Twin Peaks itself was also uh, at the time it was very much marketed as a slightly quirky uh, mystery story with soap opera yeah. elements and uh, you can uh, part of why it uh, went down uh, so uh, was so divisive at the time you know was because uh, people were tuning in expecting a sort of a mystery soap and uh, instead suddenly finding themselves confronted with uh, you know owls that weren't what they seem and. Uh, um, disappearing um, Air Force officers and uh, all sorts of things that, uh, you know, they hadn't signed up for. Yeah, there can be no doubt that Twin Peaks is the American, the prisoner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. As for uh, the, the remake of The Prisoner, I've got more time for it than most. I mean, I agree with you that uh, uh, maybe it was, uh, but I, I do respect it for... Uh, for trying. They didn't try to uh, be the prisoner again. They tried to take uh, the concept and update it for a millennial mm. audience, which, um, you know, maybe so drawing on things like Inception and so forth. So yeah. uh, maybe they didn't succeed. But, uh, you know, I tend to respect, uh, I, I respected them more than if they just tried to do, oh, let's uh, do uh, more episodes about this uh, guy in a jacket in a village. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess. I mean, in the beginning, I, I, I understood Patrick uh, McGowan was involved, but then he protested yeah. and, and went away. I believe if he would have done a remake or, or, or the movie version, yeah. even if it would never, because when, when you reach a certain cult status, mm -hmm. it's, it's going to be suicide trying to... I mean, look at uh, the very popular Seinfeld, right? Yeah. They did a brilliant thing because they all wanted to come back and do something, a callback. And they got the chance when they, mm. it's so meta, they did it through this uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm series, yes, one of yes. the seasons, right? And that's a brilliant way to add another episode without tanking yourself mm -hmm. and it's so dangerous to do that with a prisoner when it's reached the same kind of status that everything will fail yeah. it's always going to be compared yeah. so i believe yeah you could you you needed to renew it or, or to take it further in order to 
avoid you just a remake won't work no matter what but still i think it should have patrick's hand on it too yeah but but another guy that i think gets too little credit is his co-creator what's his name again um markstein yeah I believe uh, one of the keys to the success of The Prisoner is that he provided the grounding and McGowan provided the meta. And when he was gone, it was just meta in a way. Mm-hmm. The, the grounding was kind of gone. And with grounding, I mean the more trivial elements, the more logical, rational, yeah. the thing that draws people in in the beginning, especially people who are not too philosophical. <laughs> So I, I appreciate that mix of what I call meta and grounding. Yeah, no, I agree with you. But um, at the same time, I think the center couldn't hold in that case. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the visions were too desperate. I mean, they they meshed together for a while, but the thing was that uh, Mark Steen was um, far too uh, wedded to the idea that this was a conventional spy series with quirks. Right. And McGowan um, to uh, wedded to, as it were, the opposite, you know, the idea yeah. that this was a, a subversion of the spy series. So it's kind of, I mean, you know, Tom Blin is in some ways, I think, kind of the opposite number there. It's like, I would say McGowan kind of had two co-creators on The Prisoner. And one was Mark Steen, who provided the spy series grounding. But then you have Tom Blin, who's the one who uh, provided the... Um, the really trippy, you know, surreal elements. If you ah. look at what Tomlin did with other uh, series, like for Jerry Anderson, you know, um, he's the one who does the uh, the very uh, uh, trippy, the very druggy stories. Ah, I didn't know that. And so uh, I think um, you've got um, two forces there and, uh, you know, so, uh, and McGowan kind of in the middle providing the balance. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but there can be no doubt that McGowan's motive was to, Intention was to use the agent motif as an excuse, yeah, and all these deeper things we're discussing as the essence. Whereas mm-hmm. for Markstein, it's like you said, he wanted the agent thing to be the yeah. baseline and the other stuff to be quirks. Yeah, but you you talk about unmade stories. I wasn't aware there was unmade stories. Oh uh, yeah, there's unmade stories. Um, I'm surprised Rick uh, didn't come up when you were talking with Rick. Let me. Uh, Get the, uh, he talked about additional yeah, books, and, yeah. but not like scripts for the prisoner that wasn't made. So uh, yeah, no, there were there were uh, several because, um, as you're probably aware, around that time, uh, at one point in it, the um, the production team basically said, "Okay, anybody who wants to submit a story proposal gets to submit a story proposal." <laughs> And um, one of the one uh, ultimately of of that, the only one that got made was uh, Living in Harmony, which was uh, the proposal by Ian Rakoff, who was uh, at the time working as the assistant to John S. Smith, the editor. But there were two. Um, well, there there was. Hang on. Um, yeah, the outsider. Yeah. And don't get yourself killed. Yeah. There was also finding it. Um, yeah. Eric Neval, if I can find it submitted. Yeah submitted three stories. He was, um, I think, also one of, yeah, he he um, submitted two ideas, neither of which got uh, taken up. Ticket to Eternity, which was focused around the idea of a, uh, a church in the village that uh, promises eternal life. Oh, my God, I would want to see that play on religion. Yes. Um, ah. I think, but um, one of the reasons it was abandoned was that McGowan uh, explicitly avoided uh, references to uh, to religion and faith. You know, I mean, uh, overtly, yeah. symbolism was fine, but actually, overtly, uh, mm. 
doing it. I mean, he even had the team film around the statue of the Buddha, which really is in uh, Port Marion's, uh, so as not to show it. Right, right. And then um, the uh, the second uh, suggestion was uh, friend or foe, which uh, I'm actually kind of really glad wasn't made because it was uh, supposed to be about uh, civil the, the black civil rights movement uh, that. Um, the prisoner strikes up a friendship with a uh, black activist uh, who had been come to the village. And um, then, um, but it uh, becomes in the end, it turns out to be uh, the black activist turns out to be a white man in a black rubber mask. Ah, yes. <laughs> that wouldn't stand today. <laughs> yeah, no. And I don't, I'm not even sure how well it would have stood up then, you know, yeah, it, yeah. Uh, yeah, is uh, said, but the idea is brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the idea is brilliant. Yeah. That even you look at Obama. That's the ultimate parallel to what you tried to say there, right? Yeah. Let's find a black guy and let's let him push the exact same policies, and people will, yeah. due to identity politics, they will hail him. And they tried to do the same with mm-hmm. Kamala, but now we're on to them. So it's not enough to be black. It's yeah. not enough to be of female, you actually have to have policies that people will accept. And I believe, I see the intention, brilliant, but, you know, contemporary culture just won't have it. So, yeah, it's not workable. Yeah, but it would also, it would have to be done right. I mean, um, have you seen um, Lovecraft Country? Uh, I think I have. Remind me, it's a very familiar title. It's a recent series uh, based on a novel by Matt Ruff. It's a kind of a, it's a... um, Based uh, on and kind of reworking uh, the stories of H.P. Lovecraft, but it's um, making them about the um, the black white uh, divide in the U.S. Yeah, they did discover some magical book and they acquire magical powers. Right, this um, black family is no, it that one? No, um, it's some um, white people who are trying to acquire um, powers from the magic book, but. Um, the, that, that's in episode one. That uh, the, the twist is that um, they uh, they need the blood of their right. uh, you know, their, uh, their founder, but yep. uh, the only uh, living yep. male descendant of their founder is in fact black. Yeah. So you know it's white supremacists <laughs> having to uh, go to a black man. But one of the stories, it's kind of uh, it's about the same family, but it's also kind of an anthology series. And one of the stories um, revolves around a black woman waking up to find herself white. Right. And so, sort of, uh, you know, the things that, and it, it winds up being a quite uh, complicated and powerful uh, question of, you know, what is blackness? What is whiteness? Uh, what uh, w- uh, if, if you're an oppressed person and you suddenly get the, pr- the privilege of your oppressors, what do you do with it? Yeah, that's a way to um, get get uh, get around it. Yeah. I believe Patrick could have done it if he had stuck to the body switch yeah. thing because he did use the body switch thing in one episode. Yeah, that could be a way to to do it b- yeah. rather than the blackface thing. Yeah, but, but anyway, uh, so the yeah. the outsider is about a uh, the story uh, Morris Fari by a uh, a Tur- uh, is a Turkish uh, uh, Turkish born writer uh, in the UK. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of a more conventional um, action adventure thing. Um, he finds a um, there, a plane crashes near the village, and so the prisoner meets the pilot and uh, fakes the pilot's death, and to uh, put the village authorities off the scent, and so keeps the uh, pilot prisoner in a uh, a cave near the village. So 
Oh my god, I want to see that episode. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like it would be a good fit in the early episodes. Um, yeah, it was kind of a lot more. As I said, yeah, it was a lot more like a Second World War uh, uh, drama. You know, soldier crashes behind enemy lines and yeah. uncertain whether his re- rescuer is a resistance member or a Nazi uh, uh, who is stringing him along. Right. And uh, in the end, the prisoner, the pilot and the prisoner are rescued by a, uh, a search and rescue helicopter. But, uh, <laughs> you know, w- when um, the prisoner wakes, of course, he's back in the village. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, and I used that cave thing in another angle. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was someone, yeah. a sailor or something, there was someone in a cave that he helped. Yeah, the cave comes up over and over as uh, in the prisoner, you know, as uh, kind of a symbol yeah, uh, call back to Plato, right? Pla- Plato, yes, or uh, yeah, symbolizing the unconscious. I think there's a reason why you know caves features are strongly in Fallout. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's also kind of a bit sexist this uh, story as it uh, works out, and uh, yeah. Um, so quote from my book here. You mean the outsider, the unmade? Yeah, the outsider. Yeah, yes, okay. um, the village's revelation, the story's revelations about the Palace of Fun, uh, which seems, among other things, to be running a kind of Stepford escort service whereby mentally conditioned young women see to the fun <laughs> of men. In case the sexual implications of the ideas are not clear, we have open references in the script, with number two remarking that numbers fifty-five and eighty-three are there to attend to our pleasure. And the pilot, I, I wish yeah. they have done that because it would be more realistic because that's how life is. Yeah. But again, it, yeah, it's very I think it risky. Would depend, yeah, it would depend on how it was handled. But again, yeah. this is uh, also something that McGowan was really not keen on uh, exploring. You know, he very right. much was against uh, uh, the sexual exploitation of women in um, in spy series. So he moved away from that a lot. Yeah. Um, so the other unmade story is. Uh, don't for which we have a script is don't get yourself killed uh by gerald kelsey where the um the villagers are taking uh re-educational lectures through audio phones and the prisoner is of course refusing to participate yeah and um the prisoner then encounters an escape committee who are trying uh, schemes to flee the village and he is skeptical of uh their activities um, because uh, their plans are being easily thwarted by um, the uh, the villagers. Sounds like all these ideas have made themselves into other episodes. Yeah, I mean, I think this is uh, really what's going on here, that there's, uh, you know, this is a little bit, uh, yeah, er, uh, it was, yeah, it seems to have been early uh, in the uh, commissioning process. And uh, yeah, it, it's, the author said that uh, it looks as if they took some of those ideas and used them. Because I can, yeah. I can, the, uh, the author said that the um, that McGowan didn't like it because uh, the action was shared among too many other characters. But uh, okay. you know, large cast stories aren't unknown, so it's probably more likely that uh, you know there, there's kind of two stories going on between the escape committee and the reeducation uh, system, and they they don't really come together at, at uh, in the, in the story. So it's kind of more the um, lack of integration between its ideas. Right, but remember they had this uh, brilliant new way to learn. Yeah, yeah, and the general with speed learn. Yeah, and you also had um, um, what did they call it? The jammers. Yeah. So so yeah, it's... so there 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 were definite ideas that were coming in there, but again, mm. uh, it's also like um, a lot of the prisoner draws on stories of resistance in the uh, the Second World War. Yeah. In this case, you know, it's an obvious riff. The escape committee is an obvious riff on. Um, 
you know, the great escape and the way in which uh, prisoners in Colditz and other uh, camps, uh, you know, would um, set up committees in order to uh, collectively figure out how to um, how to escape. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and the Nazi references are interesting for all, mm. our audience. Uh, a hint to them, mm. to my listeners, is the Bormann Brotherhood. So <laughs> there you go. Even in back that in. Wow. But um, no, look. If any person listening are involved in filmmaking, I, I suggest this because this they could get away with. What if you guys make instead of a remake or a continuation, just make episodes mm. like these episodes that weren't made make them now bake them into the story yes why not <laughs> but of course it can't be done without patrick maybe but mm. that's what i would want to see i would want to see missing episodes yeah. god that would be great okay let's move on so out of the village yeah. the influence of the prisoner on later popular culture yeah. Um, I tried to squeeze Rick for, I mean, he, he provided a lot of obscure information, fun facts, factoids, but this is another thing he didn't touch too much, although I'm aware of many, many references, but because people who hasn't watched Prisoner won't recognize it. Could you help us point out some of this? Um, well, quite a lot of it. I mean, in some ways it's uh, um, one of the things that's, uh, difficult about talking about the prisoner's influence on popular culture is that uh, it has been so influential on popular culture. If you, to your listeners, if you haven't seen The Prisoner before and you sit down and watch it, you know, it's a bit like uh, when you first see a Shakespeare play, suddenly you realize... I've seen this before, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, this yeah. is where that comes from. This is where all these uh, almost cliches come from. This is where this uh, references come from. It's just... Uh, you know, it, it, this is mm. where it, it all began. Mm. And so, you know, the imagery and the language and so forth have embedded themselves so thoroughly in um, uh, the visual culture of film that uh, Good point. It, you, it, you see it everywhere. Mm. But in terms of more obvious uh, things, for instance, um, people will, um, the, the revived Battlestar Galactica, for instance, um, initially, you know, they um, had the conceit of... Uh, the Cylon, the Cylons, you know, the non-humans um, mm. take numbers rather That's than right. uh, names. And uh, right. kind of the central Cylon who we focus on the most is actually number six. Uh, you know, she's tall and right. beautiful and blonde, so she's not remotely like Patrick McGowan. <laughs> no, but he he denied being uh, six anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, number six is there. And that's also a series that plays a lot on identity and, uh, you know, on doppelgangers and other themes. Mm. And there, there are lots of re references throughout. So Cylon number one, for instance, uh, at one point he appears in a, uh, a white hooded robe, mm. you know, like number one in The Prisoner. Mm. And uh, there uh, are questions about which of the Cylons uh, uses a name and which uh, uses their number and uh, things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But David Cronenberg in Scanners, for instance, uh, uh, had a, um, a psych, uh, which is a story about a psychologist who uh, physically and mentally manipulates um, some, uh, you know, a group of uh, telepaths. And of course he cast Patrick McGowan. Oh. So you can see, uh, this as a kind of a reference to the prisoner in a uh, story that's uh, kind of about mental powers and about uh, mind control and the like. Uh, uh, McGowan is kind of um, the uh, antagonist figure. Right. Nice. 
Nicely yeah. done. That's that's like when he also had a role in Colombo. Yeah, that well, that one is just overtly joking about the prisoner. Yeah. Yeah. And there's uh, um, a series I quite love, though it seems to be uh, more obscure now. Uh, uh, Reboot um, did an episode that was entirely uh, a prisoner parody, you know, with uh, uh, up down to a um, direct parody of the uh, the title sequence, the character walking through the uh, oh, really? parking his car and walking through the garage and banging his fist on the uh, the desk and so forth. But it wasn't filmed in Port Mayon. No, I mean reboot was an animated series. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, there's also in music. There's many yeah. samples of the prisoner yeah. in music. Yeah. But there, well, there's even a music festival that uh, takes place in Port Marion, and it's called Festival Number no. Six. <laughs> I didn't know that. Brilliant. Yeah, and it's uh, contains pr- prisoner homages as well as pop music. Right, right. But yeah, there's a movie Killing Zoe, um, which was written by uh, Roger Avery, uh, Quentin Tarantino's uh, frequent writing partner. Which, in fact, uh, I mean for. Uh, Overtly, you know, there's a bit where uh, two of the characters are stoned and one of them actually describes the plot of A, B and C, mentioning Once Upon a Time and Fallout as well. Wow. And it also it it draws on the prisoner. You've got the main character dressed in a black polo uh, neck shirt and charcoal suit. Um, Mm. He wears mask, a mask to rob a bank and everything is in bright primary colors. And there's sort of a druggy night nightclub sequences and uh, you know, he he was not hiding the um, fact that he was influenced by the prisoner there. No, Eyes Wide Shut uh, yeah. did, did the same as the prisoner. They depicted the elite mm. uh, masked. Yeah. And uh, that's funny because if you look at our, us now, we are more. It's the opposite masking symbolism than you see in V, v for Vendetta mm-hmm. or in reality when it comes to COVID. Mm-hmm. We are the unwashed masses. We are the anonymous. But Oswald Schott and the prisoner also say that, well, but they are also masked. Mm-hmm. They are also uh, anonymous. Yeah. And that's the, it's the same symbolism with the rover, the gray, uh, mm-hmm. the gray faceless bureaucracy. Yeah. And this is a good lead into a question that not many have dealt with that I've noticed. I mean, within the cult phenomenon, of course, but mm-hmm. in general, everybody says who is number one. Mm-hmm. But you have an essay called Who is Number Two? Yeah. And I think that's interesting to explore a little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. That isn't one of our essays. That's actually about uh, one of the books. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, the one on page 199. I mean, that we have essay five is who is number one. And uh, that's where we explore the whole imagery of one and I and uh, so forth. Mm. But but if we discuss number two, then whether it's yeah, it doesn't have to yeah. follow your book here. Yeah. Uh, who, who is number two is one of yeah. the uh, spinoff books that came out contemporaneously. OK. But yeah. But number two is really a very interesting uh, figure, you know, the uh, constantly changing. And uh, in some ways, this is one of the surreal parts of the series, but also uh, one that uh, it's like with Doctor Who, for instance, people say, well, you know, you have uh, the same character. It's always the same character, but it's interpreted uh, differently. And you could, uh, you know, you could take a script that was written for one Doctor Who and to give it to another of the actors who played uh, the Doctor and, um, have them um, have a very different um, 
but equally valid interpretation. Mm -hmm. And so I think what's really interesting with number two is that arguably it's always the same character. You know, it's always the, uh, you know, the leader of the village, the voice of authority, but, um, you know, they can be young, they can be old, they can be male, they can be female. That's right. They can be... um, Yeah, because in in classical narration, the antagonist is a fixed person. Mm-hmm. Here, Patrick tries to say, look, there's a new person in this position all the time. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because number two, for those who hasn't watched it, is the face of the yeah. of the leaders, of the bosses, of the wardens. Mm-hmm. But is constantly changing. And it's so interesting that he also says, look, even if they are the apparently most powerful, there's always a man behind the scene, right? Number one. Yeah. But even if they are the apparent bosses, you can reach them. Mm-hmm. You can fight them. Yeah. Like in one brilliant episode. In one episode, he actually saves number two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in yes, another, ep- it's your funeral. Right. And in another episode, we have a very sadistic, psychopathic number two mm-hmm. who doesn't have the charm because that's also something that puts us off. Yeah. That all of them, although they are the baddest guys we can detect mm-hmm. in the episode, all of them are quite charming, friendly, mm-hmm. like doesn't pose an immediate threat. Mm-hmm. Uh and then comes a, a dirtbag and then he screws mm. with him and turns the system against him and he goes mad. Yeah. So that's a very interesting, uh, if you want to transfer it, because like Rick said, the village is the earth. Mm-hmm. So if you want to transfer it to us, they are all within reach. Mm-hmm. At, at least all the overt leaders mm-hmm. are not uh, like uninfluenced by by us, the, the slaves, if you like, mm-hmm. the, the serfs. That's one takeaway. But also, it's saying something about leadership in a way that, you know, the style, arguing that the style is superficial, that it doesn't matter if mm. uh, the person is uh, sadistic or kind or seems kindly, you know, they're still the voice of authority. Mm. Good point. And, uh, you know, you shouldn't be deceived by the fact that Peter Wingard seems to be a very hip sort of guy or uh, Mary Morris, an entertaining person. Which number two are we talking about now? Talking about the the one, and just, well, just take any number two, really, you know, um, <laughs> you, you yeah. can, uh, some of them are more charming, and some of them are more appealing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the one who is cruel is not an, an outlier. Mm. They're all uh, part of this system. Mm. Yeah. And um, one of them were dead honest with him, too. Uh, mm-hmm. That's interesting. And, and turning things around. Uh, you have the chess episode, of course, oh, where... Yes. Yeah, uh, I kind of Checkmate. yeah, I kind of like that was a female number two, wasn't it? I, mm. I, I, kind, of, I kind of enjoyed her, but uh, you you also get screwed up in in who to trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, the woman who takes over his life in the out outside world is suddenly was he she brought there against her will or was she mm-hmm. because she became number two? Was that a reward or was she always primed to be number two? Yeah. Many interesting place there, but. If we're going to take one episode and analyze the metaphors in it, mm-hmm. which one would you pick? Like, a, like just a, a short r- review of one episode, just to show them uh, um, an example of layers. Could we do that? Well, um, hmm, I'd say either uh, Dance of the Dead or possibly Living in Harmony, because uh, they're both uh, favorites of mine for quite different reasons. Which do you think? Hmm. Living in harmony is the, is the Western thing, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, let's go for Dance of the Dead, okay. which is one of the episodes both me and Rick agreed should be very early. Yeah. It, no. it could even work as an episode two, but uh, let's hear it. Well, that's the thing. It's... Uh, it, it it is uh, well. It's it's arguably uh, early, depending on uh, what you interpret by uh, when he says, "I've never seen a night." I've never seen a night. Yeah, I forgot that reference. Yeah, I think what interests me the most in that is this is the first time we see a uh, a female number two, and uh, also, I mean, the other female number twos, you know, are uh, hiding themselves. She is overt. And she plays very much, though, with uh, gender imagery. She cross-dresses as Peter Pan. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, as I said, she seems to be in a, an almost sexual rivalry with the prisoner for uh, uh, he, for his observer. You know, that uh, yeah, yeah, there seems yeah. to be kind of, there's a kind of a battle for the observer's soul, if you like. Yeah. But um, it's... Um, and, and it's brilliant that when he gets his costume... Yeah, yeah. He gets his own clothes. Yeah, and that's the thing through using the idea of kind of Halloween and uh, the uh, the Day of the Dead. You know, you've got uh, this. Um, you you can uh, play with what it is to be uh, masked. You know, you can play with identity. Mm. Every, everybody is in costume, but that costume also uh, arguably reveals their souls. So uh, the mm. um, uh, number two is uh, Peter Pan. But uh, at the same time, so what's that saying about her? Peter Pan is uh, a uh, a gender ambiguous figure, you know, because he's a boy and a boy who never grows up. So he's mm. never a, he's a he's male, but he's never a man. Jung Jung called it eternal youngling or something. Yeah, eternal it. yeah eternal youth. And yeah. uh, at the, it also though uh, Peter Pan is somebody who, by virtue of being a boy, is. Uh, sort of dangerous you know he uh, whisks you off to what seem to be magical adventures but uh, you know there's always a, a, a strong element of danger there you know with pirates and so forth so yeah, uh, yeah. and um, it's kind of about uh, and magical powers yeah and the story of Peter Pan is in some ways a story of growing up that uh, the children uh, flee into kind of the childhood uh, the adultless magic of Neverland but at the end of the day um after spending time there, they they want to grow up. They want to come back, and they want to. Uh, they don't want to be children forever. Hmm. So it's kind of about accepting the change of growing up. So uh, is number two kind of about? Uh, I said the village almost represents infantilization. So number two yeah. in that story is in a way embodying that. Is saying to the prisoner, you know, kind of stay in the village and be an infant, be cared for, be. Uh, you know, be eternally a boy that's uh, whose wants and needs are catered for and who never grows up. And yeah. the prisoner is rejecting that and saying that he does want to grow up. Yeah. Meanwhile, the observer is dressed as a shepherdess. So, you know, uh, ah. there's this idea of sort of somebody who's watching over the sheep, controlling the villagers, uh, yeah, yeah. but also of Marie Antoinette, somebody who's uh, got a crisis brewing under them and but isn't recognizing it. Right. Rather, she'd rather dress as a shepherdess and sort of play her little games than uh, recognize uh, what's really going on. So that's maybe saying something about uh, the the system, you know, that uh, there are people in it who are uh, supporting it and uh, who are willfully blinding themselves to uh, what's going on. Mm. Mm. And then at the end of it, as I said, you know, you've got this thing that the prisoner is himself, you know, is dead legally uh so he's told and uh, he is in this room with a um, which is behind a one-way mirror and so yeah. uh, 
he sees the villagers and they, they walk up to the mirror and they peer into it and they don't see him. Mm. So it's kind of an erasure of his identity, you know, that the village, as it were, wins here by uh, not just by killing him, but by erasing his identity, making him a, uh, a non-person. That's right. And who are actually manifesting danger for him? Yeah. It, yeah. It's not number two. It's the entire village chasing him. Yeah. They pursue him and he has to hide for them in the room with the computers. Yeah. So again, and, and that sort of brings up, uh, again, you're talking about um, ancient roots and things like that. But, you know, there's the element of Bacchanalian sacrifice there. This uh, idea that this uh, Bacchanalian festival mob might uh, leap upon him and tear him to pieces like uh, the sacrifices of the Bacchanals. Mm, mm. Good point. Very good mm -hmm. point. I think that must be deliberate from oh, yeah. Patrick's side. Yeah. It it kind of reminds me, uh, you know, the term unmutual. Yeah. How foreseeing that is, because there's few things that can trigger that. I believe they managed to do it in the 30s in Nazi Germany. Mm. They tried to do it in Soviet Union, but it was harder because the people were, you know, you didn't have the scapegoat of, for example, Jews, right? So the people mm. felt like victims. Mm. But now... The brilliant way to do it is with COVID, like the way they are departing politics, hijacking science and trying to yes. like like expressions like, oh, it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated, which is bullshit. The science tells us it's exactly the same. So they try to make the scapegoat group, the unvaccinated. And I'm not talking about pro and, or anti-vax. I'm talking about the politics of it. Mm. In some countries, not all, but in Australia and America, they're going the opposite route of us. And now the unmutual one, because that works when it comes to a virus, especially if the virus actually was, was more dangerous than COVID has turned out to be. Like, let's say it was Ebola. Everyone and their mother would be on board with the unmutual thing. There's an unmutual, burn him on the stake. Well, because oh, he's a threat against the flock, the herd. Yeah, but I think this uh, this uh, this situation actually shows very much kind of the balance uh, between the uh, you know the individual and the collective because uh, people who uh, you know will uh, refuse to get vaccinated and refuse to wear a mask uh, can and sort of uh, compare it to the oppression of Nazi Germany because it's like this is just this is just common civility. And uh, the language of individualism there, it seems to me, is very much kind of taken to, uh, you know, I, I start to ask, who is this benefiting? Mm. Who um, who benefits from in the way that the prisoner, the village would co-opt co the language of freedom? Who is co-opting the language of freedom here? Mm. And so... Well, um, well I'll, I, I yeah. see that. But there's also the, you have to ground it in science. Let's say it was Ebola yeah. and let's say 50% died. Mm -hmm. I think most of even freedom lovers would join the mob and go against. But in reality, if you actually follow the science, I mean, don't take my word for it. Look into it. But don't use media. Use You're an academic. You know how to read studies and stuff. Mm -hmm. For masks, there's no, there's no evidence uh, that masks reduces COVID. It's 0 0.0009% or something like that, the, the real number. But it's become a symbol. It's become a popular thing, that, a go-to thing. It, it does in, in laboratory, but not out in life. There's a plenty of research on it. Yes, and but um, I can also refer you to a very interesting uh, 
study of uh, the adoption of mask wearing as a practice in uh, Asia following, um, you yeah. know, a number of uh, SARS outbreaks. Which, and uh, uh, one of the things by anthropologists and one of the things that the anthropologists found was about the impact on behavior that mm-hmm. um, what happened when people wore masks was that they were uh, frequently more careful in other uh, in other areas. Right. You know, the right. people who wore masks would uh, be more careful to socially distance, that they'd be more careful about cleaning and sanitizing things, about not uh, sort of randomly touching objects. That makes sense. And uh, so um, regardless of the uh, immediate efficacy of masks, I'd uh, say that uh, as, as a symbol, as a, a performance, you know, they're not without value. You know, you can say, well, it's all just performance, but at the same time, if it's a uh, performance that uh, means that people are uh, aware in one of the in Asia, you know, before all this, one of the reasons people would wear masks. Um, I, I I teach in Singapore sometimes, and if you see somebody with a mask on the subway, yeah. uh, the interesting thing is that it, what it's uh, likely to mean is that this person has a cold. Ah, I, I mean, I mean, in Japan, yeah. they used it for pollution, didn't they? I know it's um, normal in Asia before COVID. Yeah, well, those those were more heavy duty masks, but uh, right, right. you know, the normal thing in Asia is if you see if you see a person prior prior to the pandemic, anyway, if yeah. you saw a person uh, uh, out in public in a mask, what it usually meant was they had a cold, and it could just be a very little cold. But mm. the idea was it was so the social norm is to kind of keep um, keep to to protect others from your germs. Right. Right. And you can say, you know, well, scientifically, uh, there is no protection, but it, it worked as a symbol of saying, I have something, if you get too close to me, you might catch it. Hmm. And hmm. so that means... Yeah, that, I can see the logic of that. But, yeah. but my point is that to be an unmutual, to be deemed a mutual, let's say, let's say it's warranted, because a virus is the perfect mm. way to manifest that. Then it's still the same parallel of what's going on. There's always going to be scapegoats. They're always going to be ganged up on by the majority, right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Because we go into deep philosophical waters, because you could say the same about war. Is there such a thing as a just war? So if there's such a thing as a just war, which always should be defense, of course, then maybe you could say there's also such a thing as a just and mutual. That's going to be a philosophical and a political mm-hmm. point, which is up to each and everyone to make themselves. But Patrick, very early on, introduced that element of the unmutual mm-hmm. and i think it's ironic how it's manifesting today because it's i think it's the only way it could manifest maybe except you know heavy brainwashing like uh, the nazi third reich they managed to do something similar there too and uh, have you seen the have you seen the classical horror show uh, horror film called uh, invasion of the body snatchers um, yeah, not recently. No, but, but you yeah. probably remember the area scenes where yeah, the people. they discover, oh, he's not one of us. It's one of the free human beings. Mm-hmm. And they point and they scre- this horrific scream. Yeah. That's an unmutual, an unmutual. That's the vibe. And Patrick is obviously on the side of, of the freedom of the individual here being, being uh, deemed unmutual, right or wrong, for whatever reason. And it's, it's so interesting that that has a renaissance today in actual life. Of course, he couldn't know that would happen. Well, it had, it had resonance for, uh, at the time that it was made, and I think it's continued to be resonant in a lot of ways. What, what was the contemporary reference? Well, the contemporary reference was uh, the, um, the counterculture of the 60s versus the, uh, the main culture. Right. You know, if you watch films like, for instance, like uh, 
watching Easy Rider for the first time was a revelation to me because uh, in some ways, uh, hippies have almost kind of become a bit of a harmless uh, parody of themselves. You know, we think of hippies as just sort of um, innocent people who uh, like to live in communes and take drugs. Um, But uh, watching Easy Rider, you can see that they were a genuine threat to what people saw as the social order. Mm. Mm. And so they... uh, you know, they reject and even kill, um, you know, the um, the the hippies that uh, are biking to uh, New Orleans. Mm, yeah, I remember. And so, so yeah, and and uh, so this at the time of the Cold War, you know, there was very much this idea that uh, we have to uh, conform, that we have to, uh, you know, kind of all be in line, and uh, we all have to uh, adhere to the idea. Science, uh, science, good. Nature must be controlled. Mm. Uh, Western education is best for everybody. And it wasn't until uh, you know uh, McGowan and others like him were kind of uh, part of a vanguard of uh, uh, of the questioning of that of people saying, you know, well, is Western science really good? Is colonialism for the benefit of uh, the colonized as much as the colonizers? You know, uh, and uh, the heart of that is the question of conformity. Do we? Uh, do you conform? Do you obey? Do you follow what uh, the powers that be are telling you, or do you uh, reject that uh, that narrative and uh, right. follow your own path? Mm. Yeah. So at the time, really, very much about the counterculture. Yeah, because uh, that's also a thing, and it, it probably deliberate. Mm-hmm. He tried to make it unidentifiable in terms of mm-hmm. when this is. Yeah. Like if it should really be a child of the sixties, mm-hmm. every everyone should have long hair, right? But well, less in, in some ways, almost the opposite. One of the weird things about uh, looking at the uh, uh, behind the scenes shot of the prisoner is how boring and dowdy everybody looks. You know, they're all dressed in drabs and uh, <laughs> the really you know awful short hairdos and things like that. And you think, yeah, that's. Yeah. We think that the '60s looked kind of like the prisoner, but it didn't really, did it? No, that's my point, right? Yeah. That that they managed to to escape that uh, cliche uh, mm. timestamp because you can identify. I, I believe the, the thing that mostly gives it away, mm-hmm. apart from the obvious, is you can tell if something is done before the age of digital mm-hmm. or after the age of digital. Yeah, but. When I saw it for the first time, I believe it was in the early 2000s, before the, a- the digital age had really arrived. I didn't know if this was, because I didn't see it on TV, I didn't know anything about mm-hmm. it. Just a friend gave me a bunch of DVDs or, or, or v- VHS. So I wondered, is this colored from the 50s? Is it from the 60s? Is it from the 70s? Is it from the 80s? Is it from the 90s? So. He managed that. But uh, one thing that gives it away is says, I want to be the first man on the moon. Mm-hmm. But the way I interpreted that was that was a reply to someone who said, I want something unattainable. Mm-hmm. And he replied, well, I want to be the first man on the moon. Now, if they had already gone to the moon, he couldn't be the first man on the moon, right? Yeah. So his point would still be valid. Well, you want that, but I want this, which is impossible. But no, it was, it was a metaphor because... Uh, Number two says the whole the whole earth is the village, and the prisoner says, "I want to be the first man on the moon. I want to be literally alone." Right. Do you remember what the trigger that reply? I forgot now. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah. As I said, yeah, you know, we use it as a quote on the back of the book. The whole earth is the village. What do you think? I want to be the first man on the moon. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 
want to be the first man on the moon. Yeah, but do you interpret that as if he actually wanted that? Of course not, right? No. No. It's it's sarcasm. It's what he's yeah. saying is uh, that uh, if if the village is the earth, then I don't... Uh, I, he's saying I want to be out, out of the village. And if the village is the earth, then I want to be on the moon. Right, right. And yeah. you see that imagery in the uh, ending se- credit sequence with the, uh, the, the, the penny farthings uh, big wheel becoming the... Uh, uh, the the earth and uh, at the end of the right. whole series with the earth going pop yes and then uh, uh, you also have um, in the beginning when when you see his face mm-hmm. you have the bars in front of it mm-hmm. just to remind us yeah he is in the village but he is imprisoned yeah he's never escaping no uh, you you have something called a day in the life is that yeah. uh, what what is that that was also uh, one of the books, um, the spin-off books. Okay. There were three um, novels uh, written um, at the time. Uh, Who is number two? The day, a day in the life, and a uh, a novel simply called, which was simply called the prisoner originally, but uh, was also released as the prisoner. I am not a number. Right. And that's the, the, the and then yeah. there was, there was the comic shattered visage, which came uh, a lot yeah. later. And uh, at the time that we did the writing, there was um, uh, somebody restarting uh, this, the book series with a book called the prisoner's dilemma. Um, and I believe they got a few more volumes, but unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, all books are surpassed by events. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, no, okay, A Day in the Life, uh, that triggered just an association that every episode is a day in the life. Yeah. Groundhog Day, right? Yeah, but also kind of, uh, it's a deliberate reference as well to uh, the song by the Beatles, A Day in the Life. Ah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, did did the prisoner do a lot of obvious references Um, that is lost today uh, for the general man? Well, some of them. I mean, so, um, the um, things like uh, the reference to uh, using "all you need is love," you know, as they as he uh, in the, in the final episode. That's right. And uh, Alexis Canner's character, so uh, referencing not just uh, dre- dressing. He dresses in a top hat and uh, cravat, yeah. and this is uh, sort of uh, partly referencing the youth fashions of the day, but also. Uh, Referencing Undertakers, and uh, that's right. He uses slang for, like "daddyo," which uh, were uh, was familiar at the time. That's right. <laughs> and in some ways, it is uh, still very timeless. But yeah. and that's one of its great strengths. There's not so many uh, references within the uh, the series that uh, there there are some. If you watch something like, say, Monty Python, um, there there are a few. Uh, sketches that are classic and uh you know that kind of transcend the time they're made and there are some where you look at it and they're just so full of um references that would have made sense to somebody in the uh in the 1960s That's right. um that you practically need a dictionary to um you know <laughs> to, to uh understand them yeah yeah um there was one example um there was a, a monty python sketch which had tv executives coming up with uh, a new sitcom idea and what they were doing, it was by combining the names of British sitcoms <laughs> and coming up with things that were increasingly ridiculous. Like uh, they combined uh, up Pompeii, your mother should know and uh, the wife next door to come yeah. up with up your mother next door. 
And right. th then when the uh, show was sold to the U.S., uh, that sketch was banned because uh, the American uh, censors viewing it, they had no context. They didn't know what these sitcoms were. They didn't get that they even were sitcom titles. They just uh, uh, saw people yelling what they thought were obscene things and thought, well, we can't show that. Mm -hmm. And the prisoner never really falls into that uh, level of specificity. But it is also true that if you're uh, familiar with some things like... Um, for instance, the fact that uh, the film Orfei by Cocteau was uh, uh, relatively recent at the time. And so people would get, um, you know, the references to uh, Orfei in some of the stories with codes and so forth. Hmm. Or um, even just the fact that, um, you know, people would be very familiar with the sort of World War II films that are yeah. res resistance dramas that are uh, continually being referenced. Yeah. Okay, a final point from from me is, yeah, you know the number thing is a heavy yeah. element. I wonder if he had the wits to look up numerology in order to play a little with that, because you know I'm not a number etc. But if you look at number six in in numerology or in arithmosophy, if we go back to the roots of that, uh, is that mm. six is? Do you know how? Many days God created earth, according to the Bible. Uh, six days and seven he rested. Exactly. Yep. So six has always been a, a, a symbol of the... You see it in a hexagram too, a six-pointed yeah. star. It's it's a symbol of creation. It's a symbol of being made again. And in a way, you can say that whether you say that he's reborn at the end of the series or that he's reborn for every episode, it's kind of fits that... It's number six that they insist. One should think, why don't they call him number three, for example, or yeah. number 66? When um, there's this clone of him, yeah. uh, do you remember that clone's number? Um, it's uh, nine, isn't it? Yeah, six upside down. Exactly. Yeah. So at least at that level, yeah. they played around with it. So I, I haven't watched, next time I watch it, because it's obviously going to happen again. I watch it so many times. I'm going to look for references to numbers and see mm -hmm. how the characters representing those numbers, if there's some kind of sense behind it or if it's just random. What do you think? Well, I think there's likely to be symbolism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know. Yeah, I look for that. Uh, is there any other points that you feel we should make about this when we first investigate and dig into this material that we haven't mentioned but, uh, so far? Well, I'd say that for uh, for people who uh, are discovering the series uh, anew, you know, kind of approach it with an open mind. Mm. I'd say in some ways the best way to watch it is just to uh, go in there and let it wash over you and then, uh, you know, start exploring, um, you know, when, when you... When you've um, got a feel for it, then uh, start exploring the the um, you know the many directions it goes in. You know, there's a lot of uh, uh, writing out there. You know, uh, there's not. Uh, I've written a book, so obviously I, th I think people should uh, read that. But there are a lot. I would I would not you know say that ours is the only or the definitive book uh, on the prisoner. There are so many. Uh, different interpretations and so many different ways of uh, of taking it that uh, that I would say you know and and the symbolism can go in so many different directions. Mm, yeah. Okay, looking at your history of books here, you you've done a lot of books. Are are they? Uh, is it, are we talking novels or? Um, uh, I've written no. I've only I've only published one novel. 
Um, I've uh, have written uh, quite a few uh, guidebooks to TV series. So uh, the prisoner I mentioned, Blake Seven as well, Battlestar Galactica. We've done two volumes on those. Mm-hmm. Most recently, I did a book for uh, the Black Archive, which is a um, a, a series of academic monographs on Doctor Who, looking at one story at a time. And uh, I did a uh, 40,000-word uh, book on the uh, 1970s stories, the uh, story The Robots of Death, which I think is absolutely brilliant, and I think everybody needs to uh, see it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, Doctor, uh, by the way, Doctor Who, was that? Yeah. Uh, did that come out before The Prisoner? Yes, it did. Okay, because it's place on, on identity too. Um, it does, yes. Uh, but it started in 1963, and uh, uh, the prisoner was uh, something of an influence on uh, some on some of it. But that's uh, the subject of a whole other podcast. <laughs> right, right, right. But um, the thing is, we have more book readers than average yeah. podcasts. That's number one. Number mm. two, they are also slightly older in average. Mm. Mm probably 40, 50 in average, meaning many of them will know the prisoner already. And those who didn't, well, I hope they come in via the show we did with Rick, (laughs) teasing them, right? Enticing them. So, uh, and I understand you have a book on the matter. Um, Yes, I do. If uh, the uh, book is called Fallout, the unofficial and unauthorized guide to the prisoner uh, by Fiona Moore and Alan Stevens. It mm. was published in 2007, I think, by uh, Telos Publishing. I will, have, um, let me just check the date because uh, it suddenly occurred to me. I'm not entirely sure if it was 2007. Um, mm-hmm. I found it. Um, well, yeah, 2007. Yeah, that's a Yeah, it it has uh, been through a couple of editions, but uh, no major uh, changes, just one or two updates uh, as uh, time went by. Yeah. By the way, your your prisoner book is called? Yeah, Fallout. 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 uh, It's by Telos Publishing. Right. And that's the name of the last episode, isn't it? Yep. But it's kind of, I mean, initially we'd uh, thought about, wanted to call it free for all because we thought... We want, because as you've gathered, our approach is not to prioritize interpretations. It's to say, yeah, yeah. you know, there's a lot of different ways you can take the series. And so we wanted to say free for all. You know, we will offer guidance, uh, but at the end of the day, it is up to you, the individual, right. to uh, decide how you interpret the series. Right. Um, but then we discovered that uh, Six of One, the Prisoner Society's magazine is called Free for All. And uh, they would probably not be very happy with us taking their magazine name. Right. That's six of one thing. Yeah. I remember that from the series. What's that again? Yeah. Well, it's the um, the name of the uh, the ma- uh, well. There's two major uh, prisoner fan organizations. One is the Unmutual, and the other is uh, Six of One. Yeah, but what's the original reference in the prisoner? Well, within because um, because that's a telling six of one. That's a hint. Yeah. Well, it's it's the way oh, it is. This. Uh, this hint within it that six of one, you know, uh, six, you know, six is one, six goes into one, six is uh, part of one. But but was the term six of one ever raised in the series itself? Um, yeah, yeah. 
because I have a dim remembrance that that was used at some point, probably at the end. It may have been, you know, as as a pun or a joke within the series. Yeah. Six of one and half a dozen of the other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, I think that was said. uh, Yeah. But anyway, um, so we decided on Fallout, though, because uh, equally, you know, it can also refer to the interpretation of the prisoner that... uh, we're um, uh, looking at the fallout from the series. You know, we, we are writing in the early 2000s about a series that was made in the late 60s. Yeah. And so uh, we're uh, looking at the uh, the repercussions, the impact that it had on uh, popular culture and so the fallout from this bomb that McGowan dropped upon the world. Yeah. And it's so funny, of course, the last episode fallout too, because mm. like you said, that is a bomb mm. and it's falling out. It is. He, he, and that's interesting. He, that gives me associations to religions, you know, the, mm-hmm. the fall. So it falls out of the storyline of the cycle mm-hmm. and it's rebooted. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes we may be f- seeing things that wasn't intended, but I believe in synchronicities. Mm-hmm. So even we, we can't know to what extent his genius put stuff mm-hmm. deliberately in. But where he didn't, the invisible hand did, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a, that, I believe that's a warranted uh, uh, angle because mm. you saw that you see the same in all cult series that are original where people are, are looking for clues, looking for interpretations, mm. and they come up with brilliant, valid stuff that often the creators haven't thought about themselves, but it fits hand in glove. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's synchronicity, as Jung would call it. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, okay, here's how this works. Um, I will send you the link so you can share it on your social media or whatever. Okay, thank you. I may actually send you the link to Rick's show too if you want to have a listen. Oh, that would be great, yeah. Yeah. But don't expect anything at this uh, side of the year. Okay, no. It's probably going to be next year. Yeah, well, thanks for letting me know. And once it uh, is out, I'll promote it. That's great. Okay. You know, you've been a jolly good sport, Fiona. Mm, thank you. Battling your, your coughs that people won't hear because I'm going to edit them out. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but uh, it's been a very interesting discourse. Yeah. So thanks a lot for, for coming on and, and uh, enlightening us on this. Mm. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a delight being on here. And wow, it's been uh, two hours. That's amazing. Yep. Time flies when you're having fun, right? Sure it does, yeah. <laughs> Okay, then. I wish you all the best. And and what you say in English when someone is sick and you hope they're going to heal? What's the English? Get well soon. What's that? We say get well soon. Get well soon. How uninventive. (laughs) We have better terms. I know, yeah. It's not like you to Bessel or anything. (laughs) But anyway, get well soon. Thank you. See you at the other end of this year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 Bye. 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 And as we did with Act 1, also today we're going to leave the last word to Patrick. Check this out. There's one sequence you do with Leo McKern where he says, I'll kill you. You say, I'll die. And he says, you're dead. Yeah. Yeah. I was just curious because there are so many images yeah. of, of all the figures that are in the, the series that, are, yeah. that have literary connections, <laughs> whether or not they're deliberate uh, yeah. deliberately connected or not doesn't really matter. No, I don't, I, don't, I don't think it does. No, it doesn't matter at I all. I don't think, uh, in, in that sort of, uh, I, I use the word surrealistic about it, uh, 
of thing, that one has to tie up all the loose ends. I think that options are open for the beholder to interpret whichever way he likes. Why the double mask? Why the monkey first? Oh, dear. Yeah, because we're all supposed to come from these things, you know, and uh, it's the same as the penny farthing uh, symbol bicycle thing. Progress, you know. I don't think we've progressed much. But the, uh, the monkey thing was we're all supposed to, according to various theories extant these days, come from the original ape, so I just used that as a symbol, you know. Mm-hmm. The bestial thing and then the, the other bestial face behind it, which is laughing and jeering and jabbering like a, like a monkey. Uh, is uh, number one the evil side of man's nature? Uh, the greatest enemy that we have, I mean, number one was depicted as an evil governing force in this village. So who is this number one? We just see the number twos, the sidekicks. Now this overriding evil force is at its most powerful within ourselves, and we have constantly to fight it, I think. Uh, and that is why I made number one an image of number six, his other half, his alter ego. In the uh, final episode, does the prisoner really consider becoming uh, the leader of the village? No, he does not. Uh, he just wants to get out. And he uses a technique which he hasn't used before that, which is violence. Which is sad, but he does. And that's how he gets out. And then, of course, in the final episode, he goes back to his little apartment place, and he has his little ballet guy with him, and the door opens on its own, and he goes in. Car's there, and that's so you know it's going to start all over again, because we continue to be prisoners. And that leads to my last question. What would the former prisoner be likely to do with his newfound freedom? He hasn't got it, which is the whole point. When that door opens on its own, and there's no one behind it. Exactly the same as all the doors in the village open. You know that somebody's waiting in there to start it all over again. He's got no freedom. Freedom is a myth. There's no final conclusion to it. Uh, and I was very fortunate to be able to do something as au- audacious as that with no final conclusion to it. Uh, because people do want the word the end put up there. Now, the final two words for that thing should have been the beginning. There's one sequence you do with Leo McKern where he says, I'll kill you. You say, I'll die. And he says, you're dead. Yeah. Uh, That's Lucifer time. That's it. I've been your host, Al. Thanks for listening. For your support and subscriptions. Check out our new channels at Rumble and Odyssey. Mind you, we now receive cryptos. Donations, but no pledges. And remember, you're not a number. You're a free human. Peace Number one.